Morning, everyone. Have a seat. We'll go ahead and start with a, a prayer this morning. Father, we uh, as we come into your as we're in your presence here uh, through singing and, and prayers and, and participating in the Lord's Supper together and and um, and practicing generosity as we hear your word. Uh, pray that um, our hearts are touched as uh, we continue to go through the book of Luke here. And we know that whenever um, we open our hearts to your message and your gospel, uh, we pray that our hearts are always touched and transformed and, and we uh, look more like you every time. And I uh, pray for, for myself that I share your message clearly today. And um, I just pray for all of us that we are ready to hear it and receive it. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 13. It's going to be in Luke chapter 13. Uh, we'll, or excuse me, Luke chapter 16. And we'll continue on here. I'm going to back us up just a little bit, and we'll talk just for a few minutes about where we've been here the last little bit and what's, what's happened. If you remember, here a few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the lost son. And the parable of the lost son was the son that went out and squandered his dad's wealth. Okay? And then, here a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about thankfulness last week, but here a few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the shrewd manager. And the shrewd manager had been one that wasted his master's possessions, right? Wasted his master's wealth. And today we're going to get into a story that Jesus tells about someone who wastes his own wealth. And so do you see a pattern here? Jesus is sharing, and he wants people to understand that are listening here, that what we do with whatever is entrusted to us makes a huge difference about where our heart is at. And so we'll jump into uh, Luke chapter 16 here, uh, starting in verse 19. Um, he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Okay, we'll talk about this guy here in just a second. But if we back up even further, even just a few verses above that, uh, I'll start in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so as Jesus is sharing this message here, uh, there is, uh, there's some people, the Pharisees look at him, oh, oh yeah, whatever Jesus, you know, whatever. We don't, we don't believe that. We don't buy it, you know. And so Jesus, he continues on here, and this is a little section that's a little hard to, to, to figure out why it fits right here, but uh, we'll, I'll, I'll go over it briefly, and Jesus did briefly, and so I'll just share it here. It says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. In other words, I understand what Jesus is saying. There are several things, but... Jesus is saying, the law is continuing on, and I'm the fulfillment of the law, and people that are, are assertive are finding their way into the kingdom of God. And so pay attention. In verse 18, he says, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I imagine the religious leaders, they have just finished scoffing right there, and Jesus throws this out there. And it doesn't seem that these people would have considered divorcing their wife as adultery at all. They considered that as, that's my right from Moses, the law of Moses, and I will do what I want, thank you very much. And Jesus says, no, it's not that simple. And he throws this out here. And I imagine 
when he said that, that spooked them. Their radars are up. And then he starts with this in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have a couple of different people. There is uh, this rich man, and, and there's a couple of things we notice about him. It says he's dressed in purple every day. Okay, so he is dressing to impress. Not only does he have abundant clothes, but he wears the best, the, the showiest stuff every day as he goes around. And he eats well daily. Now, if, if I'm a person that is Jewish and listening to this story of Jesus, one of the things that I'm going to note is that it doesn't appear that this guy honors the Sabbath. He does not take that day to worship God. And, um, and so he, he's just every day. Every day he is partying up. Every day life is good. And so far at this point in time, if a person looks at this, uh, hearing this message, the Pharisees that are listening, other, other people, and they look at this guy and they think, wow, this guy's dressed. He's eating well every day. That sounds pretty good. This is a guy who, as we've talked about, if he's wealthy, then God must have blessed him greatly. Look at all that he has done. Look at all that he has been given. There must be something really good about this guy. As the story continues, there's another guy that is listed here. His name is Lazarus. Now, there is... Um, some will, will question whether this is a parable or whether this is an actual story that Jesus tells based on the fact that he gives this name here. I think it's a parable. If you understand from your, your study that it is, it is a, a story, a historical story that happened, it doesn't change any of the meaning here at all. But what the term Lazarus means, the name Lazarus means, is the one whom God helps. And so there's some irony here. Is here's this wealthy guy in the story that is surrounded in luxury every day. He eats all that he wants. He has everything that he needs. He has these big parties at his house and all of his buddies that are there. And then there's a beggar that lays there at his gate who is covered in sores and was hungry and is called the one whom God helps. That's what his name means. And so the people that are listening to the story at this point in time must have thought, wait a minute here, that's not, that, how is that the case? How is the person laying at the gate the one whom God has helped? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's crazy. It's kind of like Abraham. You remember what Abraham's name was? Abraham, exalted father. What an embarrassing name to have if you don't have children. You know, and his name was changed to father of many. Pretty embarrassing until he had kids. And so here you have Lazarus that is laying there at the gate. And he is one whom God helps, but he's covered in sores and is hungry. And not only that, but the dogs come and lick his sores. Now for us, living where we do, what my mind goes immediately to is, all right, this, this is kind of a neat situation. Here is Lazarus sitting here, and he's got these open sores, and so this nice yellow Labrador that's nice and clean comes up, and he licks the sores and, and gives him company, right? That's where my head goes, because that's the type of dog that I am used to, okay? But I've spent a little bit of time, I've never spent time in the Middle East, but I've spent time in Albania and, and moving that direction. And, uh, and something I noticed, and, and something that appeared in some of my studies this week, is that during this time, in this area, dogs were not considered pets. Okay? They were a living tool, if that. And dogs were, oftentimes, you just kicked them off your porch. And in this case, this guy has got his, his home, he's got his, his, his gate, he's got his little courtyard, and dogs were often used as guard animals to keep everybody out. 
And so you have these dogs that have probably never been washed. They are probably filthy animals that nobody wants to touch. And here these dogs come, and they are licking the sores and cleaning the sores of Lazarus. And so even though the master does not pay any attention to Lazarus himself, his dogs do. Maybe it says something about the, the nature of the, the character of Lazarus as well, that he's warm and approaching enough that the dogs will come to him. It continues on here in uh, the next verses. Um, Starting in verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Okay, so Lazarus, as he passes away, doesn't appear that he gets any type of funeral, anything like that in this life, but what happens is he is, you notice that? Is he is escorted by angels into heaven. Is, is that ironic, Chris, just a little bit? That he is there on, at the gate in sores and all that, and he is escorted by angels into the presence of, of God there. That's what a turn of events this is right there. He's escorted by angels, and he becomes Abraham's guest of honor. And that's what these terms mean, is Abraham is there at this great feast, and on his is Lazarus, who is there, who is being honored and being celebrated. And you get the impression as you're reading through this is that there is a great festival as Lazarus is being celebrated as he is entered into the, the presence of comfort and the presence of God. Well, as this rich man, he says he's buried. of what happens to Lazarus. But he's buried and he finds himself being punished in the term is Hades. Your Bible may translate it hell, it may translate it Hades, may translate it realm of the dead. But we get a picture here that we see the similar description that we see that Jesus gives of someone who is separated from God for eternity. Or in hell, that is separated in in a place where there is continual torment. Pretty uh, graphic description that is given here, and a pretty pretty spooky uh, description. And so this rich man finds himself in a place where he is separated from God because of, of how uh, his, his life shook out. Uh, part of that being how he treated Lazarus. But you notice here, the rich man, he's able to see a cross here. He's able to see Abraham. He's able to see Lazarus there. And he addresses Abraham. And he says, Father Abraham... What he's doing is he's appealing to Abraham as his Jewish father, as his, his, his mentor in the faith, which is kind of interesting because when you read what Abraham did, is Abraham left his family and went to a country he didn't know and gave up a lot in order to follow God. And here is this rich man who is a descendant of Abraham, apparently, but he is addressing Abraham as father even though he really doesn't have character-wise anything in common with Abraham at all, does he? Because he has lived in the way that's the opposite of Abraham. And so here you have this rich man saying, Father Abraham, have pity on me for I am uncomfortable. Now Lazarus was uncomfortable, but I'm not used to this. I am not used to being uncomfortable. This is not something that I am am accustomed to and I don't like that. So why don't you send Lazarus to serve me? is really what he's saying here. Tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm in agony here in these flames. I don't want to be here anymore. Send Lazarus down here to serve me. Um, Man, 
This guy doesn't quit, does he? I would hope that in this particular situation, he finds himself in a place of repentance saying, I am so sorry for the way that I treated Lazarus. I'm so sorry that my heart was hard, that I walked by him and walked outside day in, day out, and I didn't give him what my dogs were able to eat, and I just walked by him, ignored him, because I thought, you know, if you feed these guys, then they come back, and they keep coming back, just like dogs, and so I just want them to be gone. I want them to be away. There's none of that says, Father Abraham, doesn't you talk to Lazarus? He says, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus down here because I am uncomfortable here and I want him to serve me. The story continues. In verse 25 it says, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he, has, he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the rich man asks mercy for himself. And he says, as Abraham is responding here, he says, my son. Abraham responds in kindness. And as Abraham doesn't say, well, you worm, why on earth should I talk with you? He responds in kindness and says, my son, in life you had all this good. And Lazarus did not. In the afterlife, Lazarus is comforted. And you are punished. And there's been a great chasm fixed so that Lazarus cannot come and serve you. And I wonder, I don't know, Scripture didn't say this here, but I wonder in Lazarus and the character that he has, because you notice Lazarus doesn't defend himself at all through this process. He doesn't lash out at, at what this rich man is doing here. He doesn't scream at him and say, you're getting just what you deserve. There's none of that. Because Lazarus just sits there quite, quietly by the side of Abraham. And I wonder if Lazarus is saying in some form or fashion, no idea, but if he's saying, hey, I'll go, I'll go. This guy has done terrible, he's done awful, he's, he's a horrible person, and I experienced that firsthand. But sure, I'll go over, I'll try to help. I don't know, but that, maybe that says something about the character of Lazarus. I know Paul said, I would be separated from God if I, my people would come to Jesus. You know, that type of attitude maybe is something that Lazarus is demonstrating there. But Abraham says, you can't. You can't escape, and Lazarus is not going to come and help and serve you. Furthermore, he said in verse 27, Then he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And so as this rich man continues to beg for mercy, he says, Father, I beg you. Do you notice who's the beggar now? Lazarus had been the beggar before, and now this rich man is in the place of where he is begging for mercy. And he says, send Lazarus. Okay, if Lazarus isn't going to be my personal servant, then please send him as an errand boy and send him back to tell my brothers something about this place because I don't want them to come here. And Abraham's response is, they have the scriptures to warn them. Now, if this guy was eating in luxury and just partying every day and was not participating with the Sabbath, then he was not going to the synagogue. He was not hearing the message of God. Uh, Jesus' time, probably in this area, probably less than 10% of people were literate. And so 
It says, let him listen to the prophets. In other words, he needs to be able to hear the message of, of God. Uh, if you hear the message of God, isn't there something in the message of God, if you look through the Old Testament, doesn't it talk about feeding the poor and taking care of the needy and treating others the way we want to be treated? It's, it's all throughout the Old Testament. And so Moses, is, or, excuse me, Abraham's point here is, is they have the scriptures to warn them, to tell them how to be what God wants them to be. They don't need to come here as long as they listen to the scriptures. And this rich man is not used to being, being told no. And he says in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Come on. Someone goes to the dead, they will repent. Isn't that, wouldn't that rock your world if you saw someone raised from the dead? And Jesus and Abraham says, He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, Abraham says, Nope, they won't. They will not. Even if someone rises from the dead, people, some people will not be convinced. And we, I think we see there's a foreshadowing there of what happens eventually is Jesus in a short time as he is on his way to Jerusalem, goes to the cross after he is unfairly accused. He goes through some mock trials and he is executed by the Roman soldiers with the religious leaders uh, standing by, excited about this troublemaker being finally gone. And he goes on that cross and he is executed and his disciples scatter. There's a few people that stick around and watch from a distance. There's a few that, that uh, are courageous enough at least to go and bury Jesus. But three days later, Jesus comes out of that tomb and appears to many people. And we see what happens. Does everybody come and change and follow Jesus at that point in time? No, not even if someone rises from the dead. There's some do. But many, many don't, and they continue to live just as they had uh, before, up to that point in time. And in all this, I think Jesus is telling us something very important, that Scripture is sufficient. Now, there's, God is not this trick pony up in heaven that he, he, he's going to just um, uh, throw tricks down on us whenever we feel like we have a lack of faith. He has given us the Scriptures, and that is sufficient to teach us how to be the people that God wants us to be. So, pretty uh, convicting uh, message that Jesus gives here, and it ends with Lazarus. It's what his name exactly means. Is the one whom God helped, isn't he? Is that Lazarus, even though he sat at this gate of this rich man and, and received not help in this life, and had had sores and had um, had all sorts of uh, his own health problems, and wanted to to eat the things and was not even able to eat the things uh, that were thrown in the, in the scrap pile, apparently. Eventually, he's very clear that he is the one whom God helped. Now, what a happy ending to that story. Um, pretty amazing story. And so let's unpack some of this. And to do that, I want to back up a little bit into uh, chapter 16 of Luke. And you remember the parable of the shrewd manager. Remember, I started off by reminding us that the parable of the lost son, you have someone that goes off and squanders his father's um, possessions. In the parable of the shrewd manager, someone who squanders his, uh, his manager's possessions. And then in the parable of the rich man Lazarus, we have someone who squandered their own possessions. But Jesus gives some insights, and I want to take us back to these in chapter 16, verse 8. It says, 
The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Not because he was dishonest, but because he was acting shrewdly. He had decided that finally he was going to, to do his job. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling world wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So Jesus says several things here, but one of the things that's important to note is that if we're not honorable with whatever blessings, physical, material blessings God's giving us, then why on earth is he going to reveal the deeper spiritual things for us uh, to be able to understand? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, Yesterday, it would have been impossible over at Bobcat Stadium to be cheering for Albany and cheering for the Bobcats, right? Can't do it. Yeah, can't do it. (laughs) Chris was cheering for both to lose. Is that what you're getting at, Chris? Is that what? Yeah, that's right. Can't do that. And just as as Jesus is trying to share with us here, if you try to serve uh, the stuff that we have in this world and try to make that God, then the God of all eternity cannot be your God. You have to decide. You have to make a decision and and who we're going to serve. And you notice he says as well, use your wealth to gain friends for yourselves or invest so that when this world is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I have to think, just a, a few verses later, as Jesus tells this parable of this rich man, as he walks by Lazarus day in, day out, and sees this beggar that was there and thinks, ha, oof, I'm not going to feed him or I'm not going to mess with him because he might get my clothes dirty. And boy, if I feed him, then there, I'm going to have beggars at my gate constantly and this is going to be a mess and oh, I'm just not excited about this at all. So I'm just going to pretend he doesn't exist. I'm going to ignore him and walk by. And I have to think, that if he would have stopped and said, God has been good to me, and I'm going to share, and I'm going to be good to this beggar who is at the gate right here, then he would have been doing exactly what Jesus had shared, is investing in those that will welcome you into eternity. But the rich man was not welcomed into eternity because he did not care for this beggar that was right there. I mean, among many other things, but among the story, that's what we see here. And so let's walk through this for us, a few things, our messages that are important. Because I think all of us want to be people that, that are blessed like Lazarus, that are ones who we can say, I am one whom God helps, and I have seen that in my life, and I'm excited for for walking into eternity. And it starts with you and I deciding we're going to be humble now. Hey, humility is, is not thinking um, less of ourselves as much as it is thinking more of others. Seeing the people around us as people of great value and, seeing, and, and walking through life, seeing how we can honor others above ourselves. And, uh, and that's, that's something that, that we see Jesus do over and over again, don't we? As Jesus went around and he didn't look at those who were poor, or those who were begging, those who were not in his social class, and said, Whew, I better not get close to them. I have no idea what might jump off and attack me. 
What, you know, what might rub off? I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to be someone who goes and I will eat with sinners and I will eat with tax collectors and I will walk down the road with them because they are the ones that need to hear the message that I'm sharing, this good news. And they're the ones whose hearts genuinely need to be healed. That's humility, what Jesus is sharing, humility. Maybe the greatest act of humility that Jesus ever did is being God who created the world, submitted himself to walking in flesh like us, and then submitted himself to being executed by his creation. Just think about that humility. Think about that love that is there. And so for you and I as Christians, what God calls us is to be people of humility, and that starts right now, deciding I'm going to be someone that approaches life through, humil- through the eyes of, of being a person who is humble. And it's important to listen to the scriptures now. Um, there is, a, um, as, as I've talked about before, there is, uh, we live in a time that is unreal because we have more access to the words of God than, than any other people in history have. In the times of Jesus, as I mentioned, in that, in that time place, in that time period, in that place, uh, literacy was very low. It was uh, under 10%. And so uh, what people had to do in order to hear the words of God was hear them. You went to the synagogue, you heard the words being shared and read, and that's where you got it. They didn't have, the average person didn't have a Bible that they could take home and to spend time with it and reflect. That didn't exist. In fact, it wasn't until the 1400s when Gutenberg's press, the first thing that was on the press, did anybody know what that was? The first printing press, the German Bible translated by Martin Luther was the first thing that was printed on a printing press. And there was these big plates. I've seen a replica of it, and it's amazing. These big, huge plates made of metal that have words in, or that have letters inscribed on them and you take this big press and, and, and it would stamp and you'd have to get another plate for another, another word, the next page so you can imagine how many, how many plates it took to translate the whole Bible and to put it there in, in book form like we have it. And you had people that, uh, that gave their lives to be able to do that. But still, the average person, because it was so expensive, did not have the opportunity to be able to to have that Bible right in front of them. And it, it's amazing, the, the Puritans. How many of you have read some about the Puritans, the study of the Puritans? Yeah. Puritans are responsible, in a lot of ways, for our high literacy rate in, across the world now. So the Puritans landed over in New England and said, we believe that in order to follow God, we have to understand the words of God. Therefore, we, as far as it depends on us, among our people, are going to have a 100% literacy rate because we want everybody to be able to read the words of God for themselves. When the 1800s rolled around, technology came so advanced that the average person could afford a Bible to have in their homes. So if Jesus came about 2,000 years ago, it's only been about 200 years that the average person could have a Bible in their homes. And now those of us that carry around devices can carry those. Don't even have to look like we're opening up a Bible. It's right there on our phone. It's everywhere. And so for us, I believe that historically we're going to be held accountable for the, the, the great blessings that we have of looking at saying, wow, we have the opportunity to read the scriptures and to know the scriptures and to have those scriptures uh, impact us maybe more than, than any other people in history. And if the scriptures were enough 
for the rich man's brothers, then they are enough for us to be able to, to understand what God wants for us and to, to help transform us into to being in his likeness. But it takes you and I deciding, I'm going to listen to the scriptures of God now. I'm going to do that now. I'm going to make that a priority in my life. Being one whom God helps means that we are people that decide, I'm going to be someone who repents now. The sin in my life, the uh, shortcomings that I have, I'm not going to just walk along, I'm not just going to take those, and this is just my sin here that I'm going to, um, to, to have, and then some point I'm going to change somewhere down the road. I wonder if this rich man, as he walked by Lazarus, sometimes just peeked over to the side and said, you know, I should probably help that guy. Oh, I wonder what's for dinner tonight. And he just went on his way, and because he was so distracted by what he had, that he de- never turned and said, Son, what can I do to help you? He never did that because he was so distracted by his own stuff. And so I encourage you, if you've got some sin in your life now or whatever, just decide that you're going to repent now. Not someday I'm going to deal with this, but I'm going to repent now. Being one whom God helps means that we realize that everything belongs to God right now. Uh, there is, uh, This is, again... That came up with the parable of the shrewd manager, and Jesus continues to, to hit this because it's so important, is when we look at the things that we have as, as ours or mine, then we miss out on something very, very important, a very, very important spiritual principle, is that everything in the world is God's. And when we look at everything that we have, that we have been given, that we have been entrusted with as something that is God's and something that we are just in, uh, in management of for a time, then it's amazing how um, we don't get bound up by the stuff near as much. And in our world, boy, that's a message that we could, we could revisit every day or every, every other day in our lives because materialism is co- constantly uh, trying to, to um, influence us into thinking that the stuff that I hold in my hands is mine and this is, this is, this is important and this is status and this is you know, whatever. But Jesus is teaching that stuff that you got in your hands, it's God's. And make sure you use it in ways that honor God. And, um, and do so right now. Another message that comes out of this is it's time if we're going to be one whom God helps, is to be generous and compassionate now. There is a, uh, we're called, if, if we read this parable and aren't convicted about taking care of the poor among us and around us, then I don't know what story we can read in Scripture and not be absolutely convicted by it. And... Something beyond that is, uh, I think for all of us, I believe for all of us, not only as a church, and we have a, some of what we, we give every week goes to, to help take care of, um, of people uh, among our, our own church family here that are, that are struggling financially. But every one of us has a responsibility in our own life, wherever we may be, to look around us and see who is in need among us and see what we can do in order to try to be a blessing and meet those needs. One of the things that jumped out to me in this, uh, this week is um, and I, I know that one of the things that was uh, greatly influential in my life when I graduated college, I ski-bummed for a while, you know, had a, a man bun. Anyway, I've repented, okay? I've repented and grown and matured in my life, you know, whatever. And I made a commitment 
and went to Italy for two years to try to share the message of Jesus in the context that was presented to me. And uh, I remember walking along, and I remember how much this impacted me, um, this story at one point in time. Because uh, at that point in time, Rome, in the Roman suburbs, has about five million people. Big city. And the guesstimations at that time, and it's many, many more now, was that there were around 400,000 illegal immigrants in the Rome area. And so there was people that slept under bridges constantly. There were people that uh, walked, uh, walked along. And every, um, every time, it was about a mile or so from, the, from where my apartment was to the church building, a little more, and we walked that several times a day. And I remember walking and walking by people that were begging, people from all, all countries all over that uh, were there and uh, they were trying to survive because living under a bridge in Italy and living with a squeegee that would, uh, they would uh, wash windows as cars came to stoplights was a better life than they would have where they came from. And uh, there was a, talk about compassion fatigue. You know, you, you walk a mile and you see a dozen people like that. Who do I help and how can I help and how do, how do I even start, how do I do this? And I remember reading this story and thinking, I don't know, I don't know in practice how I can do this day in, day out. But what I can do is what I can every day. And, and sometimes we... Uh, I learned something great going and living there overseas for a number of years and, and that. But um, one of the things that I think comes out loud and clear in this story, in this parable from Jesus, is the, the rich man was not condemned because he did not go overseas to share the message of God. He did not do great things. This rich man was condemned because he missed what was right on his doorstep. I think that's something for all of us to ponder and consider, is that there is... I believe that God wants all of us to be part of his mission right on our doorstep, right in front of us. And maybe that's the hardest mission in the world because it's so easy in some ways to go talk to somebody that doesn't speak our language or go far, far away. But the people that are right on our doorstep that are in need, those are the easiest people to walk by and say, I'm not going to look at them, I'm just going to go my way because that might involve commitment on my part. But I think that's uh, important for us to consider this, is that God's mission oftentimes, and especially, is right on our doorstep and living out that mission of God. And by doing so, we become the people that God helps. And something that comes up in here in this parable that I think is so important is that this rich man, I'm sure, was going along in his life and, and things were great and, and he, was, he was eating way too much and, and he was dressing in clothes that he didn't need and he was just surrounded by his party-hardy buddies and he believed that he was going to wake up the next day and do the same thing. And some point, like that, everything changed. I believe there's a huge message in there for us is that I think all of us that are here probably think I'm going to go to bed tonight, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and things are going to be great. It's going to be just like it is today. I'm going to be able to walk through life. But we are never guaranteed that. And things can change like that. 
And so I encourage all of us to decide to live out that abundant life of Jesus today. Look for the mission that's on your doorstep, whatever it may be. Decide that I'm going to be humble now. I'm going to listen to scriptures now. I'm going to repent now. I'm going to realize that everything that I have been entrusted with belongs to God right now. And I'm going to make this decision to be generous and compassionate right now. And by doing so, we're investing in eternity. And I believe that's the big message that Jesus wants to get through these three parables of people that wasted their lives doing things that didn't matter. And we can all be part of this great mission that changes eternity every day by looking on our doorstep and seeing how I can influence, how I can bless, how I can be generous, how I can be compassionate to the person right in front of me, whoever that may be. If you'd like to become a Christian, today's a great day to do it. Now is a great time to do that. If you've not submitted your life to, to Christ in repentance and, uh, and, and faith, and have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, gone down to that changed, then you're welcome to head to the back. The elders are back there and uh, willing to pray with you. And, uh, and you can become a part of, of Jesus' kingdom today if you would like to. Let's stand and sing together. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow